had a friend in a seminary. Actually, I'd say it's a, a friend of a friend, as I was trying to remember. I don't think I even knew the guy that actually wrote this paper. But a friend brought me a paper that uh, one of his friends brought when we were in seminary. And he said, hey, you got to read this. This is my buddy. He was either finishing a master's or a doctorate. I can't remember, but it was like his final paper. And the, and the guy was like, you got to see this. And so I looked at it and it was um, about how the whole of Scripture is about a party. And I went, <laughs> the title, you may think that you hear that and you go, what? Or maybe you hear that and you go, all right, you got my attention now. That sounds good. Like, and so you, so I looked at this and I started to think about it. And I remember talking about it with my buddy as we, as we both had kind of read parts of it and looked at it. But what he did is he traced all these themes throughout scripture about the wedding feast and about what God was doing in the final consummation and what that would look like. Even part of what we read this morning at the very beginning, Isaiah 25 of that coming to this mountain and this holy feast and what it will look like and all these things that you see throughout scripture. And so he actually made his point pretty well. It was kind of a neat picture of thinking of it that way. It was a little different than I had ever thought of it. But he made this picture all the way through of, of the way that, that God's seeking this celebration and, and what that looks like. And so uh, as you think about that and then you get to the life of Jesus as he comes and he walks on earth and where he goes and what he does. Uh, if you'll remember his very first uh, Miracle is at a wedding feast and he comes and and you see him go to a lot of these places and a lot of uh, different parties and, and weddings and feasts and all these things. And he's going to all these different places, so much so that Jesus even says of himself in Matthew chapter 11, he says, John the Baptist came and he wasn't eating and he wasn't drinking and he wasn't doing any of these things. And he said he has a demon. And he said, and then the son of man comes eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's Jesus's own words. And so he was going to all these places and all these different things and all these different environments. And it so upset a lot of people the way Jesus went about his ministry and where he went. And the religious leaders got really upset. It's caused a lot of people to pose the question If Jesus showed up today. What would we do with him? How would we perceive him if he stepped into our culture today and what would that look like? And so I, I, I mentioned that because this morning we're going to go back to this idea of the parables, of looking at Jesus's parables, these short stories that he uses to teach these great big spiritual truths. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, Luke 15. And we're going to look at the first two parables there in Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. But as we think about that, one commentator I was reading this week said this. He said, these three parables in Luke 15 are told because Jesus was making a habit of having celebration parties with all the wrong people. And some others thought it was a nightmare. And so we're going to look at this idea and what Jesus walks into and the way he lived and the way he went and the story he tells in response when people get upset about this. And so we're going to do so looking at those verses in Luke 15. And as we do, I often like to ask questions that we then look to the text to answer. Uh, you'll see that there's an outline in your bulletin. If that helps you and you want to follow along, you'll see the questions there. But they're just simply this. Why does Jesus tell this story? What's going on that, that makes him tell this story? And then secondly, what does it show us? And then lastly, how should we respond? Uh, each week we say, uh, almost each week, we talk about discipleship and what that means. And the way we talk about that is bringing every area of our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about what he teaches here and what he shows us, and then if we're seeking to bring every area of our life under Jesus's lordship, what should this then do for us? What should we do as a response to this? And so let's pray. And then we're going to look at those three questions together as we work through Luke 15, 1 to 10. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that it is eternal, that it shows us 
uh, how we can know you, how we can approach you. We pray that just as we open your word today, that your spirit would lead and guide us, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would apply this for us, to us, that you would show us exactly how you want us to take the truths of your word and, and to live those out. And uh, we just confess without you teaching and leading and guiding us, we are hopelessly lost. And so we pray that you will just do that this morning, that you will lead us in our time. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so we're going to start. We'll get to the. We're going to read through these verses as we walk through it. And so as we go through it. But let's just begin with this idea of why does he tell these stories? What prompted the telling of these? And, and as you walk through Jesus's life, as I just said, uh, Matthew 11, the way Jesus identifies himself and he talks about how they they called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners because of where he went and who he spent time with and what that looked like. And you see this all the way through Jesus's life. This is not an isolated incident. It's not just what we see in Luke 15, but you see this over and over. Uh, my mind often goes to Matthew chapter nine. It's the call of Matthew. And if you know anything about Matthew, who wrote one of the Gospels, one of Jesus's disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. And what you'll see in Scripture as you read through that tax collectors were so loathed in society that they were like their own uh, category of sinners. Right. Because that's what people will say over and over. That's what Jesus even said himself, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Right. They get singled out because people so couldn't stand tax collectors. And you've got to think a little bit about why. Uh, they were uh, being occupied by Rome. The Roman government was over them. You're really in your land, but you're being governed by another country that's come in and taken over. And then they begin to tax you. And so people would go to work. In this case, Matthew, a Jew, would go to work for the government, taxing the people that's being uh, held kind of against their will. And so you can see why people didn't like tax collectors. On top of that, oftentimes tax collectors would line their own pockets. You might say uh, you owe a thousand dollars and they tell you you owe two thousand and then a thousand would go in their pocket. And so people hated tax collectors. And so when you see the call of Matthew, it says he was at his job working and Jesus says, you come follow me, which that in and of itself is a little bit shocking to the culture that he would call this guy to come and be one of his disciples. But the very next thing you see that Matthew does, and we don't know the exact timeline, but shortly thereafter, Matthew goes and he has a party at his house. The very next thing is we see Jesus sitting at Matthew's house, having a great big blowout with all his friends. It says tax collectors and sinners were there and they were all there. And that really upset the religious leaders. They say, what are you doing that you would eat with these people? And Jesus turns to him, if you know that story, and he says, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he leaves them there all kind of scratching their heads. And we see this over and over. This is a pattern that you see in the way Jesus goes, in the way he moves and where he goes. And he upsets people. He kind of ruffles their feathers in the way he goes about those. It's the same thing you see here in Luke chapter 15. If you look at the first two verses of Luke 15, look at what it tells us. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Same thing again, the same crowd, the same crowd that the Pharisees would often look down on and go, you don't want to be with them. You don't want to be spending time with them. And there they are. And there's Jesus with them. It says they're drawing near to him. But then it says, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and he eats with them. 
And so you have to think about what's going on here. On one side, you go, well, yeah, he's he's kind of hanging out with the crowd. That's not so great reputation. And you can kind of understand that. But socially, uh, what's going on culturally, we have to think about a little bit because it's a little deeper than maybe what we read on its face. Because really what's going on here is what you see the implication in verse two when they said this man receives sinners and he eats with them to eat with someone in Jesus day to begin to cultivate that. That's saying I want to have a friendship with you. Right. It's, it's more than just having a meal together. It goes beyond that. It's really like saying to someone, I want to be friends. I want us to live in community together. Right. That's kind of the way you see them saying it. this man receives sinners. Not just he talks to them, but he's making them his friends. He's spending time with them. He's getting to know them. He's receiving them. He's telling them that he wants to be part of a community with them. And that really shook people up. It upset the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, because their view was everything was kind of a hierarchy. We're the good, upstanding people and we're wealthy and we have things in order and we do this and we don't associate with those people. And then all of a sudden here comes Jesus and he does. He says, well, yeah, I'm going to extend an offer and I'm going to spend time with them and I'm going to be my friends and they're going to be part of my community and I'm going to welcome them in. And so what you see Jesus doing is kind of turning everything on its head. And that really upsets them and what they see. And so as we think about the stories of what's going on they say, well, why does he tell these stories this way this time? What's the context? That's it. They're upset. And they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're saying, what is the deal with this guy? And look at what he's doing. And so Jesus, in that state, in that picture, begins to tell these two parables in verses four to ten. And we start to see what he's he's going to teach us. And so with that in mind, look at what he says, starting in verse three. Right. So here they are grumbling and complaining, saying he receives sinners. And so he told them this parable. Verse four, what man? Of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the one is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he come home, comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so I want us to think about this story that Jesus tells, this parable. I say of of the parables that he tells and even the ones we've looked at to this point, this is a pretty straightforward one. In a lot of ways, I feel like it's pretty clear what he's saying, given the context and what's going on. He's talking about those that are estranged from God, that are not in a saving relationship. They're not coming to God. They're not seeking God by faith. And he talks about that in the form of the sheep and the coin. And he talks about God pursuing them and what that looks like and why that's important. But I want us to think about the images that Jesus uses. We've talked about recently as we've been doing parables that Jesus always picks images that his audience would have known, made sense to them, stuff they saw every day. They would easily understand. Now, us separated by 2000 years of culture, sometimes we can miss how obvious some of those are. But this one, I want you to think about this picture and just start with the sheep that are here. 
The way he tells this story and what he says is he begins to talk about the sheep and the shepherd going to find the lost one. And so what you would see in that culture is they knew exactly what he was talking about when he started to talk about sheep. They saw sheep around. They would have seen shepherds. They would have seen this. This would be part of their normal everyday experience. They knew a little bit whether they were shepherds or not, or they had had direct experience with. They knew something about sheep and shepherds. And I want you to notice when he starts here and he starts to talk about the 99 sheep and the one who is lost. This is not a pretty picture. This is actually a pretty cutting example that Jesus uses. And if you know anything about sheep, the reason that it's a pretty cutting example is that sheep are really, really, really dumb. And they're really, really, really helpless. They can't do anything themselves. In fact, what happens, the story he tells here, the sheep that goes off and gets lost, it goes off and gets lost because the sheep can't find its way home. Sheep are driven by their appetite. They go and they look for grass to eat. And so they follow wherever the grass goes. Uh, I had a guy point out to me years ago, he was on a train in Wales, and you're flying through Wales on the train. You'd see sheep all over the mountain. He said, you see those sheep way up there at the top? He's like, they go up there looking for grass, and then they realize they're stuck, and they're too stupid to get down, and so they're just stuck up there. And you'd see little sheep. He said, a lot of them will just fall. They'll get to a point where they get on a cliff, and then they'll fall off and they'll die because they're that helpless, and they're that dumb. And so the picture of of sheep being that way, Jesus uses that picture here of sheep that can't save themselves. They get lost and they go out and there's no they're not coming back. They're not like uh, maybe a dog that gets lost and somehow they miraculously find their way home. Sheep don't have that. In fact, when you see the picture here, it tells us that when he goes out and the shepherd finds the sheep and he picks them up and he throws them on his shoulders and he takes them home. The reason he throws them on his shoulder is you can't say to a sheep, come on, let's go this way. They're too stupid. You have to pick them up and you have to carry them home. And so the picture that Jesus uses here and the the picture that he goes to is, is for good reason. It's the same reason I think that he uses the coin in the other example. The woman has 10 coins and she loses one. How is she going to find the coin? Is the coin going to come back to her? Well, no. It says she has to light a lamp and get her broom out and clean the whole house until she finds the coin. And so Jesus is showing us so clearly in his analogy and what he's using here is that we are all hopelessly lost apart from God's grace. That's all. Notice in the story talks about the lost sheep, but notice the 99 that are still okay that are there. They're still sheep. And so as he's talking to the Pharisees and he's addressing them and he's looking at this situation and he's saying to them in a way, hey, remember that you're sheep, too. We're all sheep. We're all in desperate need of God's grace. We're all not going to find our way to God unless he first seeks us. And so Jesus so clearly makes that point right at the beginning. It's the same thing with the coins. The only way you're going to find the lost coin is if the person goes and looks for it. And so he starts that way and he lays that out. And so the first thing he's teaching us and he's showing us is that we are all desperately in need of grace. Every single one of us. And so this looking down that's going on and why does he eat with those? He starts to correct that right away. Well, you're a sheep just like they are. It's the exact same thing. So look further, though, what else he does. Look at what happens when he finds the sheep there in verse five. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so the first thing he teaches us is that we're all sheep in desperate need of God's grace. But the second thing he teaches us when we talk about seeking the sheep out and then rejoicing that he's found them is that Jesus loves sheep. We're all sheep, but Jesus loves the sheep. 
so much that he goes out and he looks and he rejoices as he finds him. It's happened a couple times in my life, two that I can think of. One was real recently where one of my boys, they're running all over the place. And then all of a sudden you look up, and you can't find them. If you've ever had that, if you've ever been around small children at all, that's a constant, you know, where do they go? Where they... We were actually out here a couple weeks ago and he, uh, Quinn, who's three, is running back and forth between Joanna and I. And he'd run off and I'd kind of look at her and go, and she'd go, yes, I see him. And, and then all of a sudden I looked up and I didn't see him. I said, hey, where's Quinn? She went, I don't know. And so we started looking and we started going all over. It took about five minutes to find them. And we started looking and finally we find them and you grab them and you hold them. And it's like, oh, what are you doing? Right. And the reason that kind of panic, that reason of searching and the excitement and the holding and picking them up when you find them is because you love them. Oh, where was he? Well, it turns out he went in the ladies bathroom because he had to go to the bathroom <laughs> and he went in a stall and he actually cornered Betty Mallory. So luckily we found him right before she had to step in and, and really help. And so she went, "Woo! thank you that you got here in time. But but that story, but that that feeling of what that looks like when that happens, right? Where are they? There's a kind of almost a panic of, oh, no, what's going on? And so you see that here when he tells this story and he says the shepherd rejoices and he puts the sheep on his shoulders or with the coin. The woman rejoices and calls her friends and says, look what I found. And you see that. And I want you to point you to that just simply is that, yes, we're all sheep and we're all desperately in need of grace. But that Jesus loves the sheep. He loves his children. He loves his people. And you see that picture here, but not only that, and I want you to see what he's teaching us, not just about that, but what he's teaching us a big picture about who God is. Yes, he loves us. But when you read the story and you look at this, when it says he went out and found it, he goes out and he searches, right? He leaves the ninety nine and he goes after the one that is lost or the woman in verse nine uh, says or verse eight. She loses her coin and she lights the lamp and sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds it. That the picture running all the way through scripture is what we teach what Jesus is teaching us about who God is, is that not only does he love us, but he pursues us. You can go back to the very beginning in Genesis three and the first thing that happens in the first sin. What happens? Right? Adam and Eve do exactly what God doesn't do doesn't tell them to do, then all of a sudden they go and hide themselves. And then the very next thing is, there's God. Adam, where are you? Right? That's the first thing that he says. Where are you? And he says, well, who told you you're naked? What happened? You know, he starts to speak. And then as they see the consequences for their sin and it begins to dawn on them. The very next thing he says is he turns to Eve and he says, I am going to send one through your seed that's going to crush the serpent. I am going to pursue this. And I'm going to fix this. And then you see that arc over the entirety of Scripture. Always. It's always that picture of God pursuing a people. And you see it all the way through. And that's the story. That's the big story over the whole of Scripture. You see it coming all the way through the Old Testament as the prophets talk about the one who's going to come to fix this. And you see him pointing ahead and saying it. And then Jesus arrives. And he does come. And he does pursue. He leaves his throne in heaven and everything that it affords him to be born into this world as a baby in a manger in the middle of nowhere in poverty. And he comes to seek and pursue. And then when you start to read through the Gospels and you see Jesus's life, you see this in everything he does. Where is he? Where is he right now? Why is he telling the story? Because there he is seeking people out that everyone else overlooks. And so you see this all the way through. And as Jesus begins to tell this story, he's correcting their understanding. But the Pharisees had made it all into a bunch of rules 
on how we see God and the rules we follow. And if you don't follow them, then you're out and these people are in and all this. And Jesus would say to him over and over, like he said to him in uh, at the uh, the call of Matthew. They say, what's he doing with those people? And he goes, go figure out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They had made it all about sacrifices. They had made it all about rules. They had made it all about these things. And he's going, you're forgetting that all of this was done to pursue a people, to bring them back. And here you are standing off and saying, we're not going to talk to those people. We're not going to spend time with those people. And Jesus is standing in the midst of all of them going, have you missed the entire story? You're all sheep. You're all in desperate need. And God is pursuing. That's who God is. And so he begins to teach all these things in this very, very simple and straightforward story. You see this all the way through Scripture. God loves us and he is on a mission to redeem his creation that runs throughout all of Scripture. God is going to set things right. He's going to redeem a people for himself. You see this all the way through all of it. And so you start to see this picture. And then here Jesus shows up and they totally missed that picture. They started to draw lines and say, those people are out and they started to huddle up over here and we're not going to talk to them and we're not going to do this. And Jesus shows up and he's looking and he's going, wait a second, you've missed the whole picture. And so he begins to correct those things. But there's one last thing I want you to see here. So we've got we're all sheep. Jesus loves us. He loves us so much that he's pursuing us. That's who God is. He pursues. But then there's one last thing I want you to see here, which is pretty cool when you stop to think about it. But look at what happens when they find the sheep, right? When he finds the sheep, what does it say he does? He calls together his friends or neighbors and says, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Right? Let's have a party. I found my sheep. And it says in verse 7, so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who need no repentance. Same thing's going on in heaven. And then you get to the same thing there in verse 10 and about the lost coin. And she calls her friends and they rejoice. And then look at what he says. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I want you to think about the picture and what Jesus is telling you. Think about this for just a second. Where does Jesus say he came from? He says it a few times. He says it in John 3. He says it in John 6. You know where he says he came from? I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And I want you to think about what he says here in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What is Jesus telling us? I came from heaven, and so I know what heaven is like. And what heaven is like is there is a party when sinners repent. There's a celebration that goes on when people repent and they see that they are sinners and they need grace and they come into that relationship with God. He says there's a party. There's a party that happens when that's the case. And so you think about this picture. He says whenever a sinner repents, there's this. Heaven is a continual party. As sinners are repenting, there is rejoicing every day over and over in the heavenly realms over what's happening. That God is redeeming a people, that God is on mission and he's doing this and there is excitement and there's this incredible party. And you go, wow, what a cool, cool picture that is there. And so when I think about that picture of grace being celebrated continually, what does that mean for us? When we start to say, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, we want to live like Jesus and be like him. We want him to be the Lord of our life in everything. What does that mean for us 
as his followers today. And there's a couple things I just want to point out briefly that we can take away as we look at all these things that Jesus says. And the first is simply this. We get to love all people. You get to love everyone. The picture here of Jesus going, what do you mean? Why would I not be here? When they say that to him, it's kind of like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm going to be here. This is what I came to do. You get the freedom to love all people. You get to pursue people no matter where they are and what's going on. Right. He, he, he sees this picture. And, and, and oftentimes what I what I read when I see it is for years I've read this story. And I'll just confess I read it all the time as Jesus pointing his finger at the Pharisees and going, man, you guys have missed it. And that's part of it. He is correcting the Pharisees. But as I read it this week, I kept coming back to it. And I started thinking about the people sitting at the table with Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the outcasts and all those people that no one paid attention to. All those people that the Pharisees looked down on and went, I don't have anything to do with them. And there Jesus is sitting with them. And he starts to tell them this story about how he rejoices over finding his sheep. And he's sitting there with them. And they're looking at it and they're going, he's talking about us. Jesus is so excited to be with us. They start going, how does that feel if you're sitting at that table with the Lord of the universe? And he says, this is why I came. To be with these people. Right? Guaranteed, they felt love like they never felt it before. Felt acceptance that they'd never had before. And so that doesn't mean that you accept people and all their sin and everything and you never speak the truth. You never call them to repentance. But what it does mean is you love them through that. Jesus is always doing both. We said this last week. We like to force Jesus into our side. Jesus is very about preaching the word and that's what he's about. And then some people are like, no, no, no. Jesus is all about parties. Right. Well, he's both. He's both equally. He's grace and truth always in perfect balance. He does both. He's always there right in the midst. And so the first thing is we get to love people. But then the second thing I want you to see is is Jesus extending this offer of friendship to this group of people. It says there in verse two, this man receives sinners. He's he's extending his friendship to them. He's spending time with them and, and what that looks like. But I want you to think about what's underneath that. And I say it this way. There is a community of the deepest level available through Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about this for just a second. Whenever we we experience community that's very deep and and important, and and what often is is through that is a shared experience, right? We'll we'll attract to people that have similar uh, experiences to us and and similar likes, and and that's how communities often form. I I don't have it on today, but sometimes I'll wear my ring from Texas A&M. And I'll be walking through an airport and some guy will be like, hey, class of 75. He'll see my ring. Right. We, we have a shared experience that we went to the same school. And even though I've never met him, he'll go, hey, when did you go to school? You know, and that happens different ways. I have a, a good friend from seminary who was a chaplain in the army and he served in, in Afghanistan in three tours. And he would tell me about the horrors of what happened and what that looked like. And we'd talk about it and we'd pray about it together. And then he'd say to me, he said, there's just some things you can't understand unless you were there. And he said, you just don't get it because you didn't have that experience with me. And so there's like within the army, there's guys who were there that know what he's talking about. And they have a shared experience that I don't because I was not there. And so we do that in all different ways. But I say all that to say this. 
in Christianity, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then you met the living God of the universe and he brought you to life. There is nothing deeper than that. There is no deeper shared experience than that. And so when Jesus goes to the outcasts and the people that are on the fringes and he offers them this friendship and this community and he brings them in and it's all through grace of what Jesus is doing. Suddenly there's a depth. It doesn't matter that they're outcasts. It doesn't matter where they've been. It doesn't matter what their socioeconomic standing is. They have the deepest possible connection because of what Jesus has done for us. And so there is community available that's deeper than anything else in Christ. But then there's two other things we'll say real quickly here as we end with what Jesus is teaching, what it means for us when we look at that. We can have this great community. We can love all people. But then I want to make sure that we always say this is, is when you see what Jesus is saying and who God is in the ark that runs all the way through Scripture is simply this. You are sent. God is the sending God and you are sent. Jesus says in John 20, 21, just as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. You are sent. You are a sent one. Now, when you come into relationship with Jesus, because you know what he's done for you and you know what's happening, and what he's doing in your life. And so now you are sent. You're now part of the search party for the lost sheep because you realize you're a sheep, too. And you realize what happened to you, And so you now have this opportunity to go. The problem is, and we say this often, if you haven't heard this before, but we talk about up, in and out. It's the way we, we move. It's an easy way to remember and think about. Up is our relationship with God. We gather and we hear from God's word and we're exhorted and we sing praises together. In is we have relationships together. The deepest community possible through Christ that we now experience. But the out is we're supposed to go and tell, go and make disciples. And the hard part for every one of us, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, is the up and the end are kind of easy. And it's great. I get to be with other people that have experienced who God is and who Jesus is, and I'm content to spend time with them. But the truth is, if we are being obedient to who Jesus is and what it looks like, we have to do the out. It can't just be the up and the end. It has to be the up and the in and the out. What does Jesus' life look like? Where is he everywhere he goes? Yes, the disciples are with him, but where do they go? They go to these parties with all these people of all different places and all different things. And they go and they seek and they seek and, they, and they're constantly going. And yes, there's a balance of the up and the in and the out. There were times when Jesus would go and retreat and he'd pray all night. There were times when he'd sit down with just the disciples and teach them. But they were constantly going and going. And so it has to be all three. When we think about what it means for us, it means we're sent. That we have to be doing the out and we have to be going. But then the last thing I want us to think about, and this may sound silly or shocking or I'm not sure I want to say this. But when we think about all this picture, we are to be a party people. We are to be a celebratory people. When you think about this picture of what Jesus teaches and what he says and what he's pointing to us, there was a quote in your bulletin this morning, and it was from Tom Wright. It was actually his commentary on Luke, and he says this. If you discover what's going on in heaven, you'll discover how things were meant to be on earth. That after all is the point of praying God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And so I just ask you the question, how are things in heaven? What does Jesus say? How things are in heaven. 
He says there is a continual celebration over people repenting and coming to faith. And so the picture is if if we see that and Jesus tells us that and we're to be those people, what should it look like? Let's say to you that Christians should be the most celebratory people there are. People should be asking, like, why are you constantly celebrating everything? Because of Jesus. Because of what he's done. Because I am a sheep that was helplessly lost and he came and found me. We should be celebrating that day in and day out. That's how we should be marked as a people. And we have wonderful opportunities. And when you think about that being sent and how those go together, Jesus knew this. It's a lot easier to go and have those conversations and engage people and go to them and be sent to them at a party. That's where Jesus went over and over and over again. He was constantly at these things. He was constantly there right in the middle pointing people to the truth. And so if we're going to follow Jesus and take seriously coming under his lordship in every way of our lives, we're going to be a people that celebrates a lot. And you don't have to be like, oh, no, how should I feel? You should be joyful. It should be an overflow of your heart. It shouldn't be like, oh, no, are we supposed? Yes, we are. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to love him so much and love each other so much that people just go, what in the world is with them? And so just ask this question as we end. Do you think the church is known that way? Are we known as the most joyous, celebratory people there are? If we're not, I go, man, there's something not quite right there. Because we have the deepest community, we have the deepest truth, we have the deepest, most joyous news there is dwelling right here with us, led by God's Spirit. That absolutely should be the case. And so I just ask you this as we end, as we think about this, just so you can have these conversations, think about this. How can we do that? How can we as a body do that? How can we? Be, I would love to be known as, hey, you know that church? They just celebrate all the time. They're constantly celebrating who God is. It's crazy. They're constantly doing Wouldn't that be wonderful? What a wonderful way to speak truth into that reality. And so just think about that with your groups this week or next week when you meet or different things. How can we do that? What would that look like? So let's pray. God, we thank you for these wonderful parables, these stories, these pictures that are here. Uh, Just the way that we see you moving and loving people and caring for them and meeting where they are calling us to that. We thank you for that. I pray that uh, as, as we think about those things, that it wouldn't be something we're compelled to do out of duty. It wouldn't be something we feel like, oh, I have to do this because the Bible says I have to do this. But we would want to do this led by your spirit, overflowing with the joy that comes from knowing you. I thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that you didn't leave us in our sin, but that you came and you seek to save. And we thank you for that. We thank you for all the many, many blessings you've given us. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.